0: Last week, as we began our series in the book of Psalms, we learned that the Psalms are, as John Calvin described them, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, offering readers of the Psalms words for the expression of the full range of human emotions. Furthermore, we were encouraged last week not to disregard the Psalms, uh, but instead to dive deeply into them and, and love them Because the rhythms of the Psalms that we see in Scripture, they match the rhythms of our souls. These songs capture the ongoing experience of our orientation to God, our disorientation away from God through sin, and our reorientation back toward God that marks the Christian life. This is what we see happening in the Psalms. And so last week, as we began in Psalm 1, we read the psalm of orientation par excellence, Psalm 1. And this week, we will read the psalm of reorientation, par excellence, above all others, preeminently. This is a psalm that's all about how God reorients us to Him. And so if you would, please open up your Bibles to Psalm chapter 19. As we read through the entire psalm this morning... That is, Salmos, capítulo 19, versículo 1 a 14. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, know that this is a safe place to learn how to read the Bible. We're all learning together each and every week as we sit under the preaching of the Word of God. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's all right, just open up your phone's browser to Psalm chapter 19, uh, starting in verse one. Look up the ESV translation. That's what we'll be reading this morning. Just get there. And I'll do the rest. And so, as we embark and prepare to read God's word together, we confess, we acknowledge, we remind ourselves that we were made for orientation toward God. And as true as that is, we often find ourselves in the depths of disorientation. So the question for us this morning is, what will turn us back? Where and in what way is reorientation possible? And so with those questions in mind, listen to the text as it's read with these questions in your head and then join me in prayer as we ask God to help us answer them. So beginning in verse one, let's read Psalm 19 in its entirety. David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God Rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. These are God's words and we need the help of God's spirit to understand and apply them. So would you join me in a prayer for help? Lord, I, I with David pray that you would cause the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart to be pleasing in your sight even now as we dive in as we engage with your word. Lord, we're confident that even as you say in Isaiah 55 that as your word goes out, it does not return void. And simply, Lord, we ask that as your word goes forth and is read and is preached, that it would do something in us, that it would work, that it would act upon us and within us and bring forth responses out from us. Lord, for your glory, for our greater and further orientation toward you, Lord, for the good and for the joy of our souls. We ask that you would work in this time, that you would fill us with your spirit to understand and apply your perfect word. Lord, we love you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, seeing now as we've been preaching through the Psalms, which are a book of songs, and focusing so much on singing, I have a musical question for you all. And you don't have to raise your hand and reply, though you could. That's up to you. Um, Let your conscience dictate how you act. But (laughs) would you describe yourself as tone deaf? (laughs) Would anybody put themselves in that camp? You can, again, answer internally. (laughs) But would you consider yourself to be tone deaf? That is... Unable to to really well perceive the differences of musical pitch very accurately. (laughs) Fernando, put your hand down. (laughs) You know, just not quite able to sing in the right key and follow the melody of a song. Well, if that's you raising your hand, I got a little bit of bad news for you. Studies show that only about 5% of the population is actually truly medically tone deaf. (laughs) They suffer from a condition known as A musia, which I'm putting some context clues together here. I didn't look that up, but it sounds to be like without music. They just, they just don't have it. Music's not in them. This is commonly known as, as tone deafness, which stems from an issue in the brain uh, in which it's either present from birth or caused by an injury, that something in the brain makes one less capable or incapable of processing pitch, of finding the right melody, of processing the musical information as it comes into the ears. And so, with that being said, though many might self-identify, there are, may actually be just a small few of us who are actually tone deaf. The rest of us just might need some help. Just need a little bit of training to sing a little bit better. But we might describe ourselves this morning as tone deaf because we try to sing the song that's happening around us. We try as we worship to sing the song. And to us, we just can't seem to get it right. Even as others play well and sing beautifully, we can't seem to follow along the way we're meant to, the way we're supposed to. And more than just then, the song that's happening around us, we need something else to click, to happen inside of us, so that we can sing the song we're meant to sing. There's a disconnect between the song around us and the song within us, and we need something to happen. We need some help. Find the melody, and we see in Psalm 19, verses one through six, we see the song that's going on all around us. It's a beautiful and famous song to use our words from last week of orientation, and it picks off uh, picks up where we left off last week in Psalm one, in noting and showing us that we were made to be oriented to God. That's Psalm one. In Psalm 19, then, all that God has made is meant to further establish that orientation. The creation, it sings to all that there is a glorious, majestic, and powerful creator that we should live in reference to. That's what's happening in the first six verses of Psalm 19. The heavens, church, are, are speaking and singing God's glory, and everyone and everything hears their voice, it goes out through all the earth. Verses three and four. The day and the night are pouring forth speech and knowledge. And the sun, it, it rises and sets and there is nothing that's hidden from its heat. Verses five and six. Psalm 19, one through six, it shows us that there is a song going on all around us that we were made to sing. And this is what theologians refer to as general revelation. That is, that the natural order of things, the way God has made them, um, proves that there is a mighty and majestic creator. That God has given everyone in the world, just by virtue of being alive, (laughs) a knowledge of who he is and what he is like through creation, through providence, the way he works all things together, and through their conscience that he's made and, and placed Within them. And this knowledge that we have through this general revelation, it makes everyone accountable to orient themselves toward God. General revelation is God crying out to us, church, through what He's made. He's saying, I am Lord. Look what I've made. Live in reference to me. See that as I've made all things, I've made you. I've purposed you. I am the maker. You are what I've made. (laughs) You are meant to live for me and with me and to me. And so at this point, this is what we've heard last week. This all sounds good. This all sounds clear. So what's the problem? (laughs) What's the issue then with this song that we're meant to sing? Well, the problem, church, is not the song. (laughs) The problem is us. We're the problem. The song is going on all around us. The song that creation is singing. But left to ourselves, notwithstanding the beautiful chorus that we live in, we still can't sing. Left on our own, our ears become deaf to this song. And even as believers, as those who know the Lord, we can b- begin to forget the tune. As sinners, those who find themselves always struggling not to turn away from God and fall into disorientation, right? Being turned away from him. We acknowledge that what Paul says in Romans chapter one, verse 18, is very true. That though God could be clearly known through all that he has made, we actively suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We, church, are prone to wander, to forget, to fall away in our weakness, and our unbelief. The song is happening all around us, but we're not singing. And so, being sinful and fallen, general revelation alone is not enough to bring about reorientation. That revelation of God, though it makes us accountable, it can't bring us back when we've strayed. We need church more than the soundtrack of creation to open our ears, and to reorient our hearts. Believers and unbelievers alike can behold a beautiful sunset and be moved and compelled to an extent and then still go live on not being changed by it, not being drawn back to God by it. Listen to this quote from John Calvin, the one who said that the Psalms are the anatomy of all parts of the soul as he describes our condition. He says this. He says, that while the heavens bear witness concerning God, their testimony does not lead men so far as that thereby they learn truly to fear Him and acquire a well-grounded knowledge of Him. It serves only to render them inexcusable. It is doubtless true, and this is Calvin speaking about all of us, <laughs> that if we were not very dull <laughs> and stupid, the signatures and proofs of deity which are to be found on the theater of the world are abundant enough to incite us and to acknowledge and to reverence God. But, as although surrounded with so clear a light, we are nevertheless blind. This splendid representation of the glory of God, listen to this, without the aid of the word, would profit us nothing. Although it should be to us as a loud and distinct proclamation sounding, in our ears. And I know that was a mouthful there, but did you catch the words of reorientation, the means of reorientation as he spoke? He said that this general revelation, this splendid representation of the glory of God, it would profit us nothing, the song around us, without the aid of the word. And this church is our answer to the question of what reorients us back to God. In addition to the works of creation, God has given us His word. He has added his special revelation to his general revelation in order to achieve our reorientation. And that's what the rest of this psalm is about in verses 7 through 14. And so now just look with me at verse 7 just to see this. Having established that God made us for orientation, but that we all fall into disorientation, What is it that will enable us to sing again with creation? And it's this. Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord. The law of the Lord. That is, the explicit, verbal, and written word of God as contained within the Bible. God's law, or otherwise described in these verses that follow, his testimony, his precepts, his commandments, his fear, and his rules. These are all different titles attributed to the same reality. That is God's word. God's word. And as we'll see and dig into in what follows as we break down these verses a little bit further, the revealed word of God, it's what has been given to us for our reorientation. And so said another way, here's the sermon. God's word is God's way of reorienting God's people. God's word is God's way of reorienting his people. It's like the instruction from the vocal coach that enables the student to sing. As God's word comes to us, it works in us so that what comes out of us is the song of orientation that we were made to sing to him. God's words revealed in scripture are his primary means, church, of getting our hearts back in tune. In Psalm 19, it puts this on wonderful display. The Psalm, it proves, as we read it, that God's word is the word that we most need to hear, before and above all other words in the midst of our disorientation. And it also proves, Psalm 19, that God does have a word of reorientation to speak into any and every experience of disorientation. We need to hear God's words and the good news is that he has a word for us in every and all situations. The Psalms truly are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul and the scriptures then speak to every part of that anatomy. God, church, has a word of reorientation to speak into every disorientation that we desperately, daily need to hear. More than any advice, more than any coping mechanisms, more than any worldly approaches to understanding and processing and outletting our emotions, we need God to speak to our souls. And so, in the rest of our time together, we'll draw just two points out of Psalm 19 that make the case as to why you and I really need to hear God's words. And the points are this, and they're phrased in a command, something that we take action upon, something of a charge that we receive. The first point, open your ears to God's words because of the kind of words they are. I'll say that again and I'll say it even one more time as we progress. But open your ears to God's words. Why? Because of the kind of words that they are. Secondly, open your ears to God's words because of the kind of work that they do. Because of the kind of work that they do. So because of the kind of words they are and the kind of work that they do, we should give our ear to them. We should come eagerly and readily and desperately to hear what God has to say. And so with that, let's jump into our first point. Why do you and I need to hear God's words? And it's because though there are many words in the world, there are no other words like these. Look with me at verse 7 again. And as we go down the list of uh, what is being described here in verses 7 through 9, we'll see that the way the psalm is arranged, that each a uh, new line of these alternating you know, uh, couplets in these phrases here, it begins with a description of what God's word is like, of the quality of his word, followed underneath by that which it does in us. And that'll be our second point. So for the first point, we're going to look at the first uh, ascription to the, God, to the word of God, what it's like. And as we look in verses 7 through 9, summing it up, we see that the quality of God's words, as described by David in this psalm, is that they are perfect, they are sure, they are right, pure, clean, and true and righteous altogether. These are the kind of words that he speaks to us. These are the kind of words we need to hear and stake our lives upon. And so looking with me at verse seven, the first description of God's word is described as the law of the Lord is perfect. That is blameless, of perfect integrity. There is no fault in God's word. He never, church, gives us any bad advice. (laughs) Nothing we have to weed out here. It's blameless, it's perfect. Secondly, moving down in verse 7, it says, The testimony of the Lord is sure. That is, it's trustworthy. And it's trustworthy because the one who speaks the word, the one who testifies to the word, is himself trustworthy. He's keeping his covenant. He is keeping his promises. As Numbers 23:19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? God, the testifier, even more simply, <laughs> is described in Titus chapter 1, verse 2 as God who never lies. God who never lies. His words are sure because he himself is trustworthy. Next, moving on down the list, we see that the precepts of the Lord are right. They're right. What God says is, is just. It's fair. It's imbued with the justice of God, the holy judge, and the character of the perfect Lawgiver. God's law matches the character of of the lawgiver, And so that means that what he wants for us is not arbitrary, <laughs> it's not purposeless. He's laid it out, um, what's right, because it is right. Everything he would ask us to do and have us do is the right thing to do. And it's right because it's been determined by his own perfect character. It's a reflection of who he is, his justice, his holiness for us to walk in. What God says to be right is right. And the application is that if anyone disagrees, they are wrong. God's word is right. And we need to allow his word to speak against even our own words and prove them wrong as necessary. Which I'm sure, at least for me, is frequent. Next, moving down the list, the commandment of the Lord is pure. That is morally pure. Absent of any evil. It's not like a helpful medicine like you see on the commercials that seems to do all these great things but then on the bottom there's a laundry list that's half the screen of side effects. God's word is not a great medicine with some nasty side effects but it's a medicine. It's a remedy that one can freely and unhesitantly drink down to the last drop. There is nothing bad for us in here, church. No chewing the meat and spitting out the bones. (laughs) Nothing needing to be taken with a grain of salt is found within the scriptures. It's pure, all of it, fully to be received by us. Next, verse nine says, the fear of the Lord is clean. And here's kind of an interesting phrase in that the fear of the Lord is being used, you know, synonymously with the word of God. We don't usually think of that word in that phrase kind of working that way. But I would say the psalmist David here includes it that way to to this end, that the fear of the Lord is seen as the word of God in the sense that uh, it's the revealed teaching, the revealed doctrine that reveals the manner in which we're supposed to live before God, the manner that we're supposed to serve God in. In this way, the fear of the Lord is his word because it shows us how to serve him, how to serve and live in reverence and awe before him but we see that it's clean because it presents to us a way of living that doesn't defile, right? A way of living that is, is pure and upright, and these, again, these terms become synonymous. But if we live our lives God's way, it doesn't lead to defilement. It doesn't lead toward any uncleanness. It's a good and clean way to live. Secondly, or finally, in taking these two together, we see in verse nine, or excuse me, yeah, in verse nine, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They're true, as in the truth. <laughs> they are divine instruction from him to us. Words we can receive as the very truth itself. And as Calvin, speaking to this, says about God's rules that he's given, seeing as they are the truth, they are all, he says, righteous, from the greatest to the least, without a single exception. By this commendation, he distinguishes the law of God from all the doctrines of men, for no blemish or fault can be found in it, but it is in all its points absolutely perfect. These are the words of God. And now, expanding this discussion now from what David is immediately referring to in Psalm 19, looking at God's law, that is the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, we know that the qualities we're encountering here aren't just limited toward God's law but instead we confess that all all scripture is breathed out by God 2 Timothy 3:16 and all scripture therefore bears the character of God meaning it's all the same quality you're not going to find a bad word in any part or any end or any section of this book His words in their entirety are without any error, without any falsehood, without any defect, without any shortcoming, (laughs) unlike any of the emotional advice (laughs) we could receive from ourselves, from other people, or from the world around us. God's word never leads us astray. It never leads us further away from the truth, but instead, it always brings us back to the truth. And so the question for us at this point in the sermon is, when you're feeling disoriented, <laughs> or the, the, the application, don't open your ears to words that make it worse. When you're in the midst of disorientation, don't open your ears, don't give credence to words that will only turn you further away. To the words that come from the world that tell you whatever you're feeling is right, <laughs> uncritically, or whatever you're feeling is totally out of your control. <laughs> Instead, push away move away from filling your heart with words that come from lesser authorities, from words that are of an inferior quality and words that have a dismal accuracy. Turn away from those words. Because church, if our basic problem is that we were made to live with God and now we're not living in reference to him, who better than God himself to turn us back and tell us how to live? What better than God's own words for us to make our way back to him? Church, open your ears to God's words because as they are words from God, they have the unique ability to bring us back to God. And this leads us into our second point. Because God's word, it does just that. It actually works to speak reorientation into our disorientation. And this leads us again to that second point, that we ought to open our ears to God's words because of the kind of work they do. That is for you, open your ears to God's words because of the kind of work they do. God's word is our way back to God. And to prove this point, we see it in action in the lines that we skipped over in verses 7 through 13. And what I want to note here at this point in our our sermon and at this point in our series is that Unlike some of the later psalms that we'll encounter in the sermon series, Psalm 19 isn't just addressing one particular experience of disorientation. (laughs) But instead, it's addressing, in these verses here, all experiences of disorientation. All experiences of our disorientation are here summed up in a list of (laughs) disorienting cacophony (laughs) and discord that God's word Is meant to remedy. And so the takeaway here is that based on the the breadth and the variety of the disorienting list that follows, um, is that God does indeed have a word for any and every experience of disorientation that we face. All the variety here and what David is describing speaks to the fact that God has a word for everything that's meant to bring our hearts back to Him. And so these verses after reveling in and making much of the unique gift of God's word to us, they each go on to uh, describe a way, to exemplify a way in which God's word works to reorient our souls. David sings that God has a word to speak when we experience the, the following things. When we experience weary souls, a lack of understanding, sad hearts, darkened eyes, our own fickleness, falsehood, and lesser affections, our inclination to sin, our doubt, our lack of proper knowledge of ourselves, the allure of sin and temptation, and our general need to realign our speech and affection with a proper orientation to God. He covers all these topics in the list that follows, and so we're going to briefly walk through them and see the ways in which God's word works in his people to change them in which a word of reorientation is spoken into our disorientation to actually do something in us. And so beginning in verse 7, we see that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And we could stop right there and just dwell for the rest of the sermon upon that. Reviving the soul. Who here is weary this morning? Who here is feeling lifeless? Who here is in need of restoration that comes from God? His word is given to you for the reviving of your soul. God's word, church, is life-giving. He spoke and all creation came to be. Jesus raised Lazarus from the tomb with a word. Jesus' words in John chapter 6 are spirit and life. And he himself has the words of eternal life. God's word restores as it regenerates and causes those who are dead in sin to be born again. And it restores believers, it restores us, who are weary from their battle with sin, who are weary from suffering, who are weary in life under the sun. God's word revives our souls. Secondly, look at the work that it does. It makes wise the simple. That is, To those who are lacking in wisdom and understanding, it supplies wisdom and understanding. Not that true wisdom is intelligence only. It's not just information that's being given, but instead it gives us the information and understanding to know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and that the right way to live life and do life is in reference to him. This is the understanding, the wisdom it gives to the simple. It shows us what life is about, and it's about God living in his world, living in his way. Next, God's word, it speaks to our our saddened or down hearts. It says in verse eight that his precepts are right, rejoicing the heart. And you don't often see rejoicing used as a verb (laughs) in that way, that's kind of an interesting word, but God's word, rejoicing the heart. God's precepts, they they show us the way to, to righteous living that allows us to to live in a new way that's marked by walking in light, right? In freedom, with confidence, without a conscience that's dirtied and and sullied. We receive joy as God makes to us his path uh, of our lives clear. He shows us in his word a better joy that comes from living in orientation to him. And so as we move away from sin, as we take upon ourselves the precepts of God, we find a better way of life, with better promises, with better joy, with enduring happiness that the world can offer. Following that, we see that his word enlightens the eyes. His word addresses our ignorance, our ignorance to what is really true. He gives us the knowledge, the true knowledge of what is right and good and worthy. And this might seem like a simple point, but in our world, (laughs) there are many competing definitions, many competing arguments as to what is true and lovely and right and beautiful. And the Psalms say that God's word opens our eyes to the truth of these things. Look to God's word to see what is true, not to what the world would have to say. God's word in verse nine, it's enduring forever. It speaks to our our fickleness (laughs) and our flightiness. Right? God's word, in comparison to the passing fads of the world, it's enduring. It has stood the test of time and will continue to stand the test of time. As arguments and philosophies and new movements and new waves of thinking about things come and go, God's word endures. And so we should be more prone to throw in with his word, to trust in it, to lean upon it, than to be carried away by every passing thing. It helps to confront our fickleness, our flightiness, and speaks to our own falsehood in false ways as it says that his words are righteous and true altogether. There's nothing false in them. There's no deceit. There's no error. It speaks into and corrects our falsehood. God's word frees us from self-deception. Next one, verse 10. I know we're moving quickly through these, but I want to get the full picture of what David has for us. But this one is good. God's words, he says, are more to be desired than cold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of honeycomb. They are sweet. They are good. That is, God's word speaks into our disorientation of the lesser desires that are in our hearts, the things we love and long for and chase after. David says God's word is better than all of your lesser desires. He has more in himself to show you than the world could ever hold a candle to. His word speaks into the disorientation of lesser desires and reorients the affections of our hearts back to the things that are truly worth treasuring. Applying this to use the phrase, why would we want man's two cents when we could have God's treasure? Why would we want the cheap pennies of the world when we could have gold from God to savor and to enjoy Finishing this section out, we see in verses 11 through 13 that God's word, it has a way of addressing our tendency, our inclination to sin in all sorts of different ways. It restrains the evil in us because God's word, it warns us that the consequence of sin is death. It speaks to us the end of the way of living apart from God. Continuing though, it doesn't just remind us of the end of the wicked, It also promises us, it holds out to us the hope of the righteous. Because in keeping them, verse 11, there is great reward. God's word speaks into the disorientation that we could have when we are finding ourselves prone to wander into sin. Prone to doubt that God's way is really the best. That it really leads toward anything good when it seems so hard to live in the world according to his ways. His word reminds us that it's a better end for those who keep his commandments and that there's judgment awaiting for those who don't. And so it helps us to obey. God's word in verse 12 helps us even to see the ways in which we aren't obeying that we don't even know yet. He says, who can discern his heirs? Who truly knows himself? Well, thank God for his word because it's a mirror that reflects to us who we are. And we can see in it his righteous standard and we can see where we fall short so that we might do the word instead of being hearers only. David prays, Declare me innocent from hidden faults, Lord. He says in verse 13, continuing, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David looks to God's word to expose in him the things that he doesn't even see, to have a fuller and more complete self-knowledge, to not be deceived so that he could live um, even more in orientation to God. He wants to see his hidden sins revealed and he prays to God as he's writing about his meditation upon the word of God that he would be kept back from the allure, from the temptation of presumptuous sins. The things that are just out in front in violation of God's law. Out in front violations of his commands but that the world might celebrate. That might seem so in your face and tempting. David says, God, keep me from those sins. Keep me from throwing in to what First John two describes as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Keep me from those things, Lord, as I meditate upon your word. Let me store it up in my heart that I don't sin against you. And then he closes his prayer by saying, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And we consider at this point all the orient, reorientation, rather, that we've seen up till now. We look and see that it's, it's possible um, through God's word, but also that the orientation that David's describing here isn't the ultimate reorientation that we experience. All these other and lesser experiences of reorientation, they point to the greatest reorientation that God has worked through his word. And that's this, that ultimately there was one Word of God, capital W, Word of God. Above all others, that has been spoken for the sake of our reorientation. That is Jesus, the Word, who according to 1 John, or excuse me, John chapter 1, verse 14, he became flesh. He dwelt among us. He entered into the depths of our disorientation, identified with sinners, sympathized with our weaknesses and temptations, all for the sake of our eternal reorientation. God's word is God's way of reorienting us. Ultimately in Christ, the one who came and entered into that situation, died the death that we ought to have died for turning away and was raised to life that we might forever live in reorientation to God as we place our faith in that word, as we receive that word and he revives our souls forever. This is the ultimate reorientation that God works through his word. And much could be said about applying all these things. (laughs) And I'll aim to be brief and brilliant because that's our theme for today. But you might anticipate that after speaking about God's word (laughs) and these first two points, you're going to get an application that says, so, read your Bible more. (laughs) Which is true, but, but not all. It would do a disservice to this text to come away with it with the same old, same old, read your Bible a little bit more because it's good for you, because you ought to. Now, instead, speaking to the rhythms of our souls, speaking to the ways in which the Psalms work upon our hearts, the application for us, the challenge for us would be to establish a regular rhythm of allowing God's word, his perfect words, his effective words, to thoroughly address the anatomy of your soul. Regularly, Rhythmically present yourself before God in his word so that he can speak to every experience, every instance of disorientation within you, turning your heart back to him day in and day out. So we need to read. We need to study. We need to memorize and meditate upon God's word. And as we do so, we should expect him to work. (laughs) David is just Outline, He's exemplified. He's sang a song of celebration regarding all the ways that God works through his word. And we should bring ourselves before it. We should place ourselves underneath it expecting that as we do, something will happen. Something will occur when we open up this book and in faith, ask God to speak to us. Much more could be said about this, <laughs> but let me share one quote that uh, will help us, hopefully um, compel us to do just that. Don Whitney, in his book, The Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life, which speaks a lot to this, this point here, he says this. He says, Open the book expectantly. Anticipate the discovery, each and every time you do, of a practical response To the truth of God. It makes a big difference, he says, to come to the Bible with the faith that you will find an application for it, as opposed to believing that you won't. Come to God's Word expectantly, expecting Him to do the work of reorientation through it for His own glory and for the revival of your soul. Come to God's Word expectantly. And once more, as Thomas Watson, the great Puritan said, but if you intend to profit by God's word, bring it home to yourselves. A medicine, he says, will do no good unless it is applied. Let's apply God's word and experience God's reorientation and praise our God that though, as creator, we didn't sing the song of creation to him that he deserved. We have good news that he's a redeemer, who through his redemptive word in Christ has brought us back into reorientation to him so that we could once more join the chorus of praise to God, our rock, and our redeemer. Let's pray. Oh Lord, your word is true. We need it. And even this morning, as we've opened it and read it, it has gone forth. I pray, Father, that through the reading and the proclamation of your word, it would not return void, but it would instead do your work within us. That we would be excited and eager and expectant to come to you, to meditate upon your word so that you would do your work within us. Thank you for your grace to always redemptively reorient us. Thank you for Christ, the word, who reorient us to you, reoriented us to you, forever. Oh Lord, receive our praise, receive our thanksgiving, for you are our rock and our redeemer. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.